the three on this side, Elizabeth and Melissa and Caitlin, are all going to Egypt in a few weeks. And then Melissa is going on to China. So be in prayer for them as some transition times are happening in their lives. Wonderful, wonderful young ladies. Julia is here. If your children would like to go back and get the Bible bags, you're welcome to do that. Everyone else, let's turn to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to start with the 15th verse, and we're going to go through the 28th verse. Genesis 29, the book of beginnings, of origins. And as I've said, we'll spend this, the rest of this summer primarily in Genesis and Exodus as we explore these primary stories of the people of God and how God works with his people and what lessons we learn from them and how we can then apply that to our generation and our location and our situation. We come uh, to that moment in the, the story where Jacob goes up and spends time with Laban. And I've, I've preached actually several times on this, and every sermon that I've heard focuses on the deceiver being deceived. That Jacob, this one who deceived his father Isaac and manipulated his brother Esau, now is being deceived by his uncle Laban. And we always talk about how, you know, you reap what you sow. And if you're a deceiver, you're going to find yourself being deceived by others. And there's lots of reasons for that, of course, that that if you're an untrustworthy person and you know you can't be trusted, you think that nobody else can be trusted, and so you live life as though no one can be trusted. You also, I've noticed, are kind of like a magnet, and, and you begin to attract people that can't be trusted. And pretty soon your experience is that no one can be trusted because of this instance and this instance and this instance. And so we've often looked at this story of Jacob as reaping what you sow. And that's a, a great sermon. And of course, that is one of the primary lessons of this account. And it's a valuable lesson to recognize that our sins tend to generate similar sins in others as we sow those kinds of seeds in our relationship and our businesses and, and our, um, our uh, homes and, and so on. And so sin reinforces sin. But as I've become more aware of the multicultural world in which we live and how easy it is to be misunderstood and to misunderstand people from other cultures, I see some ingredients in this story that I actually hadn't seen earlier in my ministry. And it's something that has to do with how cross-cultural experiences can cause difficulty in the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's God's intention that his love would override that. So I would encourage us to kind of step back for a moment. Deception is, of course, a part of this, as we'll see. But step back from that reading of the story and think about it as a multicultural event in which there was misunderstanding and the use of culture to harm another person. Now, to fill in what happened, the last time we saw Jacob and Esau, I remember that they were... Uh, eating this lentil stew, and Jacob uh, uh, so despised his brother that he stole his birthright. Well, in between that and this account, Jacob then goes on with the help of his mother to deceive Isaac, the father, for the blessing of the firstborn. So now he's, he's gotten the blessing that cannot be taken back. It now belongs to him. And so in that moment, Esau sets out to kill him. 
I tried to find a picture of that. This is the closest I could come of Esau chasing Jacob across the desert. I don't think they had hard hats. But as he goes under his mother's direction, he's taking his trip back up to Haran to be with Laban, who is Rebekah's brother. So Laban is Jacob's uncle, which is an interesting point to make. As you can see by this map, Haran is about 550 miles from Jacob's home. Jacob was down by the Dead Sea. To put it in modern terms, Haran would be probably around southern Turkey near the Syrian border. Or to put it in the ancient empire or cultural terms, Haran was at the border of the Hittite empire and the Mitanni empires. But to understand the story, I'm going, to, I'm going to take you back even one other layer historically and remind you that it was Abraham's father, Terah, who actually left Ur and was on his way to Canaan with his son, Abram, who became Abraham, and Abram's wife, Sarai, who became Sarah, and his grandson, Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. But when they got to Haran, we're not told why, but for some reason they stopped and they settled there. And before Terah died, though, Abram, Sarai, and Lot complete the original plan, and they come down to Canaan. It's about 2000 B.C. when Abram, about 50 years of age, by our best estimation, received the covenant with God that we read earlier in the service. A promise of this land that he was camping on, that it would be for him and for his descendants for a thousand generations. <coughs> so you can see that this is a multi-generational, cross-cultural, economic and spiritual migration. It was begun by Jacob's great-grandfather. Now Jacob has gone back to Haran, to his uncle's house to flee his brother's vengeance. So do you have the story in mind? He's now been in Haran for about a month, the Bible says, and he has this conversation with his uncle Laban. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. When I read that in my studies, I thought, I'm sure that's just an English glossing, a lovely figure. Now that's what it says in Hebrew. She had a great form. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zelpah to his daughter as her attendant. 
When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. I keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, as we understand these significant stories and events of your earliest people, we acknowledge that we are no different from them in our humanity. We learn the lessons of life. We learn the interaction. We learn what is difficult and what needs your guidance. So be with each of us. Uh, speak to us uniquely. You know where each of us are in our own spiritual and cultural journeys. Uh, just empower us to be your people in this, our generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's that phrase in verse 26 that I most often overlooked when I read this story before. It is not our custom here. We often have seen this as a manipulation or a use of culture or a defense by Laban of deceiving Jacob, and he just made an excuse. Well, it's not our custom to do that. And we would think, though, that if that was true, if he didn't mean to deceive him, that some point in this seven years, he would have said, you know, Jacob, we need to talk. It's not our custom here to actually give the youngest daughter first. But he doesn't. Not only does he not tell him about the custom here, but he deceives him on his wedding night when the veiled virgin comes into his tent. So it's certainly true that deceit is a part of this. But the phrase, it's not our custom here, is a primary Hebrew word, say, And it literally means to do. And so what Laban is saying is, we don't do that here. The implication is, I don't know what you guys do down there in Canaan, but up here in Haran, we don't do that. My, my middle brother is a pastor in Texas. And a few years ago, when the economy was very depressed in the Midwest, there was a big economic migration down to Texas and the oil boom that was occurring there. And my brother said that within a couple of years, bumper stickers and T-shirts started showing up everywhere that said in big, bold Texas letters, we don't care how y'all do it up north. Now that's part of the problem. Both for Jacob and Laban, and all of us who begin to rub shoulders with people who have different customs and practices, deep down inside, culture feels right. And it's wrong to do it by some other way and some other custom and some other practice. And we don't care how y'all did it down in Canaan, up here in Haran, we don't marry off the youngest daughter first, no matter how pretty she might be. Now, we could say that things worked out for Jacob because he not only had to wait a week and then he got Rachel for his wife. 
But we would be wrong. The rest of the story, which we will study in the weeks to come, has this baby sister under the thumb of a jealous older sister throughout her life, having to share her lover with him. And as usually happens in these kinds of things, Leah could have children, and for an excruciatingly long time, Rachel was barren. But we'll talk about family dynamics and church dynamics and, and community dynamics in the days to come. Today I want to focus on this phrase, this cross-cultural, multi-ethnic church that God is creating where His kingdom is coming to earth. For us to be this global cross-cultural church, there are several things that we learn from Jacob and from Laban. First, we learn that we cannot use cultural practices deceptively. Second, we cannot use cultural practices arrogantly or pridefully. And third, we cannot use cultural practices to justify being separate and isolated from them, whoever the them are. And it's true throughout all the different cultures, the minority and majority groups. So let's look at each of these. First of all, we cannot use our cultural practices to deceive one another. Now, it was, it was pretty obvious how Laban deceived Jacob. I mean, he tricked him in two different ways and got 14 years of labor out of him for his daughters. But I've, I've noticed it's far more sophisticated and difficult in most of life in this cultural interaction when we begin to rub shoulders. The naivete that we have about each other's cultures, what we value and why we value them and what it looks like is very different. Let me give just an example from history. You remember when we study American history that we read the part about the Dutch buying Manhattan, the island of Manhattan for $24 in beads. And we know that that's a myth, that that didn't happen. But the truth is actually even more revealing. The Dutch settlers offered iron kettles and iron axes and iron knives and cloth to the Native Americans. And those were items that were normally given to purchase land in exchange of land. But for the northern culture, this land-owning aristocracy culture that the important people owned land, this was a great deal. Just a few pots and pans and knives and they owned the island of Manhattan. However, the problem was that they, brought, they bought the island from the people who did not own it. It was the Karanasi tribe that they gave the trinkets to, and the land who owned it was the Wappinger Confederacy. So here we have European culture deceiving Native American culture, and Native American culture deceiving European culture, and both were trading on the naivete of the other group. In my responsibilities as superintendent of the northern region of the Free Methodist Church in Southern California, I oversee 22 senior pastors. And as you can see by the list that I've given you, they come from 12 other cultures in addition to my own native Anglo-American culture. What I have found most valuable is that in this process of understanding 
how people think and what they value and how they worship and what is important to them is that I need to have a person who lives, breathes, and thinks in both cultures and who is trustworthy enough that they will point out to me my, na my cultural naivete and my cultural ignorance and my cultural arrogance. And if I have a person who will do that, then I can work far more effectively for the kingdom of God. And that's the key. We find it in both from research, trying to understand what works to bring about peaceful relations between cultures. And culture diversity training does not. It actually causes you to treat other people from other cultures in stereotypical ways rather than experiencing them as an individual from a different culture and listening to who they are and understanding them in their true uh, self and true nature. So the key is to understand what they experience and separate personal responsibility and personal morality because to use culture to deceive someone is sin. It is not cultural misunderstanding or cultural uh, naivete. It is using culture to harm one another. We don't excuse Laban's claim by saying we don't do that up here because he harmed his nephew Jacob. He lied to him. And second, we cannot use our cultural practices arrogantly or pridefully because it has this damaging impact on individuals with whom we share our lives. Every roommate, uh, although I've, I've had this happen far more in married couples, they know what it's like to bring the two cultures of your home family and their home family to share one house. And uh, we have all kinds of discussions about what does it take to have a good piece of rolling uh, tissue paper in the bathroom. What's the right way to do it? Or to squeeze the, the toothpaste. And usually that's kind of a funny thing, but although I've had lots of couples get pretty upset about the right way to have a house and to share life uh, together. But the humor that is often present in a home disappears when it begins to be this broader cultural uh, struggle as to what's right and how we should live and what's true and how we should worship, and on and on. We think our culture is right and others are wrong. And we then expect, especially for the dominant culture, for people to leave behind their culture in order to be assimilated into ours and worship our way and serve God with our values and our structures. Now, I don't think that Laban was consciously trying to use his culture to harm uh, Jacob. It could have been, but I think he was just choosing culture over the hurt it was causing Jacob. And so he chose, we don't do it that way, and didn't care with the fact that Jacob was being harmed. I think that's most often how culture plays out. Sometimes it is racism, sometimes it's sexism, sometimes it's classism or nationalism. But I think most of the time in the church, it's arrogance, cultural arrogance, thinking that our way is right because it's our way. And especially if we have the majority of people thinking that our way is right, then we think that it should be done in that way. 
And last, we cannot use our cultural practices to justify our separation and isolation that we don't rub shoulders with them because they are different from us. One of the, the great struggles that we've had within the church, at least within the 40 years that I've been a pastor, is that early on in, in my ministry, back in the 70s, there was a whole movement called the Church Growth Movement. And they brought sociology to the church, and they said, what grows churches? And they found that, in fact, the homogeneous principle is the most effective in growing churches. And what they meant by that, and pastors were actually taught this, I was actually taught this, that we should focus on one culture and specifically one age group within that culture, and even better, one socioeconomic level of one age group within one culture. And you will have a much bigger church because like people like to worship with like people who have the same age, same interests, same uh, backgrounds, same music, uh, same dress, and they, uh, natural sociology uh, pulls us together. Now, as free Methodists, we struggle with that immediately. This sociological observation that like people like themselves and like others made us also recognize that that is contrary to the church of Jesus Christ as described in Scripture, where there's not Greek or Jew or slave or free or male or female. We are all one, created in the image of God, birthed into the family of God, brothers and sisters in the kingdom and the, the fatherhood of God. And to begin to, to separate ourselves out and to say we can have a bigger church if we do only this one type of thing and have that one type of person was contrary to everything that we believe. In the global multicultural church of Jesus Christ, this love of the other, that's what holy means, the other, the holiness, where we love God and we love others and we allow that love to define who we are, that changes the nature of the gathering. We're not a sociological club of like people getting together who like the same things. We're the body of Christ, this global multicultural gathering with the love of God present in us such that we can love the other in all of their otherness and we can respect and honor them as co-creators, co-redemptors. They're the ones that are helping us through God's power to redeem the world. So the Church of Jesus Christ does not allow this separation, exclusiveness that so often defines the church. Defined within Scripture, as we look at the church as it will ultimately be in the book of Revelation, we recognize that it will be a ransomed people by the power of Jesus Christ from every tribe and language and people and nation. That means the church should be representative of that now insofar as we can live together and be God's people by His love. Now, I don't know how you struggle with culture, whether it's culture within your own home or culture within the larger world, but I do know that the goal of God is that there will be this unity that the love of God produces such that we do not naively harm or arrogantly overcome or require assimilation in cultural terms, but we take the moral truths of God and bring that down such that every person 
lives with a truthfulness, a holy truthfulness to God's kingdom and his purpose. So this morning, stop and think about that. How is that true for you? How is it, uh, who are those that you spend most of your time with and why? What is it that you are experiencing in terms of learning how to love the other as God has given you power to do so? And how do we as a church reach all people that God brings to be a part of us? Let's spend time in prayer.